welcome back to the Blind Shots Podcast. I'm your host, David Hill, coming to you from Bucky B's Barbecue in Cave City, Kentucky, one exit north of where you'll find the Park Mammoth Golf Course, and this is Season 3, Episode 5. Today, I want to tell you a little bit of the story I've been wanting to tell you for more than a year and a half. It's a little bit of the story of the once and future Park Mammoth Golf Course in Park City, Kentucky. And to help me tell its story, we're speaking with friend of the podcast, golf architect Brian Ross. You'll remember we spoke to him in episode 20, helping set up the Stonecrest miniseries. He's the golf course architect working out of Austin, Texas, but whose origin is much closer to us here in the bluegrass, having grown up in the mountains of southwest Virginia. And he cut his professional teeth with Richard Mandel, the Pinehurst, North Carolina-based architect. I found out about the Park Mammoth Golf Course Project from my friend and architect Colton Craig, I'd met Colton through social media and then sat down to lunch with him as he made his way through Kentucky on his nationwide research pilgrimage of Perry Maxwell courses. He reached out to me last winter and let me know that he had a new project in southern Kentucky, not far from where I grew up. I soon connected with his collaborator, today's guest Brian, through social media, and I was smitten with the entire notion of Park Mammoth. Based largely on Brian and Colton's enthusiasms and perhaps my own imagination. New courses, or even totally remodeled courses in this case, don't pop up in Kentucky very often, so this was a big deal within the golf architecture enthusiast community. They had been given carte blanche to completely remodel the former Cave Valley Golf Club, with a mandate to create a course whose primary mission was fun. I quickly realized that there might be an important story happening there at Park Mammoth, a new golf course for the masses, in that place at this time from a pair of first-time architects cut loose on a largely raw piece of land that wasn't going to be scraped sand and wispy fescue all over the place. That's something new. That's a story that deserves to be told. So I did. Colton and Brian granted me access to them and to their site on several occasions. I wrote the whole thing up in the fifth issue of McKellar Magazine. If you're not familiar with McKellar but are a listener of this podcast, you should get familiar with it. McKellar Magazine, Magazine, easy for me to say, is a literary journal focused on golf. Founders style it as a golf companion, which is a description I love. The writing is tremendous, my story aside. The stories are authentic and quirky, far from the glitzy splendor of being a glorified public relations rag for the PGA Tour. That might sound familiar. Selfishly, it was an incredible project to research and write a story that someone else was interested in publishing. But the more I learned, the more I was fascinated with Colton and Brian's process and their plans and with the course itself, watching it come together. Hearing Brian reflect now on how the course has come together, knowing and having seen where they started and how much passion and intelligence went into Park Mammoth, well, I'm just grateful to be able to help Brian tell you about it. Before we jump in, a reminder that the Blind Shots podcast is a member of the Talking Golf Network of Shows, which you can find at TalkingGolf.com. That's TalkingGolf.com with just one G, where you'll find the best podcast for serious golfers. I continue to grow more fond of my Australian brothers, separated as we are by a common language, on the Good Good Golf podcast and State of the Game podcast, which has enjoyed a nice renaissance of late. Remember that you're invited to interact with this show on Twitter at BlindShotsPod, as well as on Instagram. Finally, a reminder that the Blind Shots podcast is sponsored by me, David Hill. In addition to playing, talking, and writing about golf, I'm a licensed Kentucky realtor with Rector Hayden Realtors. I work with homeowners buying and selling their homes and also with investors and businesses on their commercial property needs here in central Kentucky. You can find my contact information at davidhill.rhr.com. If you have a real estate question or want to know what a realtor can do for you, reach out to me. The conversation's free. And with that, Here's Brian Ross and the story of Park Mammoth Golf Course. Tell me about how Park Mammoth came to you and Colton. Yeah, it's a, you know, this is a really interesting story. I I mean, I know, you know, the article you wrote and um, told part of it, but it's a, it's a really intriguing kind of come out of nowhere moment. And so Colton and I had done a couple of very small projects together and, uh, into 2019 and I'd gotten a lead on this project. I found out the new owner purchased a golf course and it's something I, you know, it's, it's a way I've kind of 
find leads occasionally just searching for articles about people who bought golf courses, sold golf courses. And, and I reached out to them and, you know, 90% of the time I get nothing back in response, no, no return calls, no emails. And this time I did, and I'd reached out to um, Dave Chandler's business partner and he entertained you know, my email and told him, Hey, you know, if we're, if we're ever in the area, we'll swing by and meet you guys. And, and we had just started another project on January 2nd in Chickasha, Oklahoma, which is about 45 minutes outside of Oklahoma city. And I was living in the women's locker room, uh, this nine hole hundred year old golf course and, uh, you know, freezing cold every day working outside. And I told Colton, I was like, we got to get, we got to get in front of these guys. We looked up a little more info on the owner. We found out that Dave Chandler is from Oklahoma, from Tulsa, and that's where Colton's from. So I said, this is, this is a good match. We need to, need to meet this guy. And so Colton went to Kentucky uh, like a week later. And unfortunately, the partner we were trying to meet with wasn't available. We said, oh, but my, my partner Dave is. And so Colton got in front of Dave, and he hired us that day to put together a little concept plan for his course. And so the, the background on that is the Park Mammoth golf course was at the time called Cave Valley. It was originally Park Mammoth Resort, but it had gone through a couple of ownership changes and it gone into bankruptcy auction. And Dave purchased the land just for land at an auction site unseen. Didn't know there was a golf course on it. He's just looking for bulk land. And so he, he, he buys the land, goes down to check it out and sees, Hey, there's a golf course here. And, and he remembered it then that he had played the golf course about 20 years earlier, went out there and there were three guys out there working, hadn't been paid in months out there maintaining the golf course, most likely just for their own benefit, just so they could play it. I think, <laughs> and I think he, he took, um, or he showed, he was appreciative of that. And, and those guys, he said, Hey, I'm going to fix this up for you guys a little bit. And so that was kind of the impetus for him to pursue this. And so our project started very small, you know, we, we didn't have any routing changes or we weren't going to do any greens. It was really just adding some bunkers and trying to spruce it up just a little bit. And, and as we started getting into design and we started thinking, Oh, well, you know, what if we do this and Oh, well, we could do this and that would make this better. And, and we did a couple of small routing changes and we were about, I don't know, two weeks into the project, they'd already started clearing trees and this thing was ready to go. I mean, he, the day he hired us, he was like, all right, let's get a plan. Let's get started. What can we do? I said, if you see a cedar tree, cut it down. Let's start with that. <laughs> and, and we'll go from there. And so we were out there in the field one day and Dave came up to me and he said, do you think it's weird? We're doing all this work and we're not doing anything to the greens. He's like, these aren't very fun greens, you know, they're pretty much 3,500 square foot ovals with 6% slopes. And, you know, they're so bouncy. They're you know, thatched this thick. And I, I told him, I said, honestly, I would do greens before I would do anything else out here. You know, greens are the lifeblood of a golf course. He said, all right, let's do the greens. And so all of a sudden that opened up you know, a whole new thing. And this project evolved in really in two months from something very small that we were excited to have to something, something very, very large that we probably, you know, never be able to appreciate him enough for the opportunity. Yeah. I mean, that talk about catching lightning in a bottle, literally. Yeah. I mean, I mean, two unheralded guys, no one's really heard of and just kind of fell into one. And just so everybody knows two two individual guys, you and you and Colton aren't a shop. You guys are no, that's individual yep. Yep. business owners and designers that just collaborated and you got your, your first shot together. So that's, I yep. love that. That's great. Kind of nature of it. Now people may remember from when you were on talking about Stonecrest, mm -hmm. you know, earth, you know, soil and rock and, and turf, you know, as the crow flies, this is only a couple of hours from where you grew up and that, Southwestern Virginia corner. Yeah. Right. Talk to me a little bit about what you found at Park Mammoth, both from kind of what the golf course was, you met, you touched on a little bit there, but also kind of, you know, that, that property it's adjacent to Mammoth Cave National Park for all intents and purposes. You know, that's a, a very unique little spot. Can you just talk about that a little bit for me? Yeah. So the property itself is, it's a beautiful little bowl shaped Valley. It's a, it's a really unique little area of the country where 
you know, a lot of Western Kentucky kind of flat farmland, you know, there's a little bit of rolling hills, but there's not much, you know, real topography gain. And as you come up I 65 from Bowling Green, you sort of start getting into that and you start, you start seeing some rock outcroppings and, and some cuts in the road and things like that. And you're like, okay, here, the topography's changing a little bit here. And so we inherited a, a very interesting property. It has some very large landforms that, you know, it, it's, it's much more heaving than rolling. And there's some signs of perhaps a little bit of glacial activity. We found, you know, a couple of little pockets of river rock high up on a bank, which you can kind of tell like in a little valley that maybe a, a very small glacier had kind of drug some rock up, up the hill. And there's no, there's no water source on the surface. And it seems like there should be. I remember the first time I visited that site, I said, why is there not a creek in this valley? I couldn't figure out why. Well, there is. It's just 300 feet below the surface. And one of the many, many, many cave systems that run through that area. And, and there's multiple cave entrances on the property, some large enough to walk in, some that, that aren't. And of course, the, the primary thing that we learned about on this project were sinkholes. And I, I knew a little bit about sinkholes because I come from the area I grew up in has a little bit of that activity too, a little bit of that karst limestone. And what we didn't appreciate, I believe, was the importance of those sinkholes and what they meant to that property as far as drainage. And on, on the grand scale of the site, it all flows downhill to the bottom, but it really, it's really four or five smaller pockets of land that kind of move down. Okay. Gradually toward the bottom. And, and so those sinkholes obviously were, were the most important feature on that golf course. And so, and they're still there, you know, they'll, they'll be there for when golfers play the golf course, you're going to see them, you hit over them a couple of times, you, you know, you hit around them um, on the first hole on 14. Uh, there's a big one on six by six screen. And so what, what I knew about the land was, you know, the soil was pretty good, had a lot of rock, which we learned from day one. As soon as we started trying to do the irrigation system, it was uh, like, oh, we're going to be in for it. We, there's more rock than we thought. And um, there were there were places where we thought, oh, there's going to be rock here. And there wasn't there. Maybe there was 10 feet of fill on top. And there were places where he said, oh, this doesn't seem like it could be rock. It's in the bottom and there'd be a rock shelf right there. So it would have been very interesting to see that site thousand ten thousand years ago i think it would have been quite a bit different but yeah you're you're right in there i did this on my kind of kentucky regions you're not quite in the knobs but you're close you know which is kind of one of those it is it's about as far south as one of the ice ages got and pushed up and then kind of receded so that's where you get these random beautiful little formations you know if we were if we were giants that's where you'd want to build a golf course, right? In those knobs regions, about maybe about an hour north of, of where Park Mammoth is. Um, for everybody that hadn't been there that needs to get there, how big is Park Mammoth? I think this is one of the most unique things about it. It's by modern standards, talk about the size of this golf course. Yeah, the golf course itself, the envelope where the 18 holes is, is pretty small. It's it's just over right about 120 acres. And Typically, if you were building a new golf course today, you'd be looking for anywhere from 150 to 200, just best case scenario. Of course, now 120 acres, that would have been more than adequate in the golden age, you know, in the 1920s. But today it did present some challenges. I don't think the golf course for the most part is too tight. I think there are a couple of spots where it pinches in a little bit, but we felt like we had adequate room for the most part on from a width perspective. Now the golf course is not long by any means uh, before it was somewhere just around 6,000 yards. We've got it up to just under 6,200. It's a par 70. So it's a short golf course. Uh, so we knew that going in, we weren't going to be able to find a lot of places for length. We lengthened a couple of holes about 30 or 40 yards by adding a new back tee. Um, but for the most part, you know, we knew, we knew what we had. And so we decided we we're going to go for fun and we're going to create some interesting greens and, you know, that's where the course is going to be defended at the greens. How many, um, how many sets of tees within that, that 6,200 ish yardage? Do you guys do three or five or 
Yeah, we did three sets of tees. Um, I think there's room for four that we may end up looking at a combo set. I, I hate to have to do that, but there there is a big gap between the back tees at 6,300 and the forward or the middle tees, excuse me, at 5,400. Uh, you know, there, there's a bit of a gap there where, you know, a lot of golfers are pretty comfortable in the 58, 59 range. And so it may seem a little too long for some golfers and, and the 5,400 might seem a little short. So we we've talked about that a little bit. I've, I've tried to keep it to a minimum. I just, I don't like cluttered scorecards and, right. and I also don't necessarily like to see golf courses that have just a set of tees stacked all the way down the hole either. So, yeah, there are. It can get tedious over there. I, I will say in defense of short, um, our guys golf trip, we went up to sand Valley this year and I don't remember which one we played different sets of tees each day. And mm. one of them we played, you know, on that, that's the opposite of park mammoth. That's a huge footprint, big land movement, but we played one of the tees that was like 58, 5,900 yards. And nobody said boo about it. Like nobody noticed, Oh, this is too short. Uh, this isn't that no one said this isn't hard enough. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it was, you know, I, I found a nice parallel though, because those are courses designed to be fun. Like I was surprised someone may have shot in their, their best scores of the year or, or best personal scores at a place like that. And I could see that being a draw park mammoth, but you said the greens are the, the real, you know, the real character of park mammoth talk to, you've got some great features there. Uh, uh, tell me about a couple of the greens that you're kind of, well, uh, you know what? I'll come back to that later. You said you've got good earth there and you've got rock and you were surprised. How did kind of what you found there influence your design decisions? Cause it's not a Sandy sandscape scraped, you know, wispy fescue type of place. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, we knew going in the course that was there, they, they moved practically no dirt. I mean, probably not a single drop of dirt via dump truck or tractor. I mean, it was pushed. They pushed the greens up where they were and that was it. And so the site that was, that we inherited while it wasn't virgin land, it, it almost was. And so we went in with the same idea. And of course that's, philosophically that's where I'm at anyway I'm looking to move as little as little land as possible you know let's create something interesting and there's a couple of holes that are you know flatter than you might think compared to the other holes out there and then there's a few holes that are you know, maybe a little steeper than you might expect on that site too but we knew that we wanted to build something that was in the character of that land and so we we moved besides taking rock out from irrigation we moved zero dirt via dump truck um, well, except for when it would wash down into the sinkhole areas and we'd have to, we'd haul it back or push it back up to where it came from during a couple of really big storms we had out there. But yeah, we, we wanted to honor that piece of land because it is, it is a really, really beautiful piece of land. And so we weren't going to do anything to change the character of that. You know, for people to appreciate the sinkholes, one of my site visits come down and to watch you guys and, and take a look at it. The, the sinkhole in front of, I guess it was six. Um, yeah, number six. This, you could have fit my house in there. I mean, it was, you could have lost equipment. Uh, yeah, we we <laughs> had the two of the biggest excavators that you can get. And they we have one in the bottom, one about halfway up, and they were just passing dirt up to each other. <laughs> And I mean, what we were doing is we were, we were trying to open them back up. We we're trying to find the bottom. We we're trying to find that hole where it, where it goes down into that reservoir or into that underground aquifer, just so we could, you know, get them backfilled properly. So they weren't going to clog up every time it rained. Right. Um, you mentioned kind of honoring the land. One of the things that's, that's always interesting to me, I'm in my day job. I have a clear delineation between client and customer. You know, I, I, I listen to the client's wishes. I have a duty to customers that aren't my clients. How does that work for you? How does that work for you in the design world? You have a client that has hired you to create something, but you're also, I'd assume, have an eye on your end user that isn't necessarily going to be the same every place. Yeah, that's correct. So, you know, the first thing and the most important thing is making sure that you and the client have the same goal. 
in mind. And Dave's primary goal with this golf course was to create something that's fun that he can go out with his buddies and play around, have a good time, not lose very many golf balls. And he wanted to give the same thing back to, to the park city community trying to, you know, in a way kind of rehabilitate this area. That's you know, very beautiful area, but it's, it's, a, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit run down right now. And there's, there's a lot of old hotels, motels, restaurants, things that, that have closed down. And there's already a little bit of a revitalization going on in this area, but, you know, we really think that this golf course can kind of help push that further. And so we knew we had the same goal as Dave, right? Right from the beginning, right? Let's create something fun. And not only was this a dream project for us, but he was a dream client for us too, because he told us from the first day, he said, look, I know buildings, I'm a developer. He's like, I'm not going to ask your opinion on the clubhouse. He's like, I know what I want on the structures. He's like, I'm not a golf course architect. He's like, I want you guys to build what you want to build out here. He's like, if I see something, I don't like it. I'll tell you, but you know, not entirely free reign, but pretty close. And <laughs> it was, you know, just like, again, just, just a real dream scenario to, to get the, you know, Colton and I both had a lot of really great ideas that, that have been just boiling in our head over the years, just waiting to, for that opportunity to get out. And sometimes you don't get to do that because sometimes you know, sometimes the clients are a little more demanding in what they're looking for, but for this one, you know, we got to, we got to throw some stuff out there and see if it's stuck. And for the most part it did. Now you've got a big smile on your face, uh, reminiscent about that part of it. You know, you have a, I don't know in other projects you'd worked on how many kind of core golf courses, you know, there's no land, there's no housing plan interrupting this. This is all one big contiguous block. Um, But I remember one of our conversations, you had a wry smile and said, you know, I've had, you've been an architect for a couple, you know, in golf for a couple of decades. So you've got a lot of ideas and here's your chance. How much, Mm -hmm. how many of those ideas did you, how hard was it not to put every idea into one golf course all at once? Yeah, we had to rein ourselves back a couple of times and and remind ourselves, hey, look, we, you know, we don't have to do it all here, you know. And we resisted the idea of following the template model. You know, we didn't build a Redan Green, we didn't build a beer. It's, you know, it was a we we were trying not to follow the trend on that. We we knew we didn't want to over bunker the golf course. It didn't need a lot of bunkers. The land was good enough. So, you know, we knew going in like, Hey, let's, let's do something that doesn't, you know, doesn't require a lot of, of land movement, but you know, the greens can defend the length of the golf course. And, you know, I, I built one green in particular. We, we can talk about it now or later. It doesn't matter. Number 11. I uh, really like that one a lot. That was kind of a concept that I've had in mind for a long time. And so I was able to recognize that one there and, and we did a couple of other things like number eight is a, a green that that one kind of evolved in the field, but it's something that I'd seen before in other work that I wanted to, to kind of put my own twist on as well. Well, the, the greens are the star of the show for sure. One of the things that strikes me having walked the property down there is it reminds me of some of the best golf courses I've played in that there are some really spectacular, if even subtle reveals the way the greens are revealed to the golfer kind of going around the golf course. Uh, I'm thinking specifically coming over the hill on four, coming around the knob on eight, as you mentioned, and seeing that green Mm -hmm. for the first time in context, Um, going up in the corner to 12 or seeing 11 for the first time. You know, you've got this, Mm -hmm. this hundred plus yard hole with this green, the size of a neighborhood where that's your, your green within your greens within a green concept and you're mm-hmm. set, you're all setting up this wild ride up into the corner for the closing stretch to come home, even having a, a basically a blind putting surface on 18 for if you're you know playing from down. So I, I don't know if that was the theme you were going for that ties it together, but just as a, a hacker observation, that's something that's that's really cool. The way the greens are the star of the show and the way they're presented. Um, I don't know if that was intentional or if that was found, uh, but yeah, talk about some of these greens that I think are really, as you say, the, the stars of the show down there. 
Sure. Yeah. Happy to. So we can start with two and four. So two and four we view as one green complex with two greens and they're separate. They're not attached to each other. Like, like we do later on, but the second green before was pushed further up the hill to the right. And it was kind of just sitting up there on a very steep right to left side slope. And just below the green that existed, there was a nice little ledge come to find out that was a limestone rock ledge, but you know, we made it work around that. And, and so that dropped off very steeply to the left. And so we have a big, large sand bunker on the garden, the front left of that green. And this is like a 330 R par four. Um, and once we made that decision, the existing fourth green seemed disconnected. Like it was close enough to be part of it, but it wasn't. And so we, we decided it was one of the earlier decisions we made to push the fourth green back into that bunker as well. So now you have a, that same large sand bunker is protecting the back of this, you know, what turns out now is a really long par four because we added a new back tee. So that whole play is about 440 from the back. And so coming over the hill on your tee shot. So the most of the landing area where you're going to land your ball is blind to the golfer from the back tee. It's mostly blind from the middle tee and you can catch the right half of the fairway from the ladies tee. But for the most part, you're not really going to see exactly where you hit your ball. You know where to hit it, but you're not going to see it land. So when you come up over that hill, all of a sudden you get this, this grand view that opens up in front of you and, and you can see the entire golf course all the way to 13 T from that area. And then you, you look ahead and you're like, okay, so now what do I have to focus on? And you look and you see this, just this massive wall of a bunker behind the green and a very small green compared to the two. So that was a, you know, another place where we kind of defied convention because a lot of times you hear, oh, well, if it's a long par four, you should have a larger green. Right. Short par four, you can have a smaller green. Well, the second green is a short par four, and it's one of the larger greens on the course. And the fourth green is the longest par four and one of the smaller greens on the course. So we, you know, we we didn't necessarily play to the standard, I suppose, in in that instance. And has anyone named that bunker yet? That giant chasm of a bunker? No, no, we haven't, two greens. we haven't done that yet. We got to figure that out. We got to figure out some names for the holes too. I think we, we wanted to do that on the scorecard to have the holes named and we haven't had that conversation yet, but we will. We'll figure out a name for that one. And uh, so the eighth is another green that, you know, the green didn't move much from where it was, maybe 10 yards back from the old green. Again, it was a, 3,500 square foot oval kind of set up in front of this rock ledge with a forest behind you, mostly cedar. And you couldn't really see into that. We took out all the cedar out of that. And all of a sudden you've got all these exposed limestone rocks behind the screen. And this hole again, another short par four, about 345 or so number eight. And another tee shot where you can't, you can't see the green from the tee. You know, you know where to go and it, it, you're going to most likely you're going to hit to the top of the hill or you're going to your ball will trickle down into this large drainage well that separates the fairway from the green. But, you know, when you're standing out there in the fairway, that just feels like such an expan expansive spot left to right a place where you know, I wanted to kind of create this boomerang green effect there. And we had already come up with a plan to cut a larger bunker into that hillside in the back and put some fescue on the back side of that. So it's going to kind of pop up and it would be a, you know, a nice color transition and going into, into the trees with the oaks and all this now exposed limestone rock that you can see now cedars are gone. So it just felt like a place for like, Hey, this, this green needs to be something cool. And this is a hole that probably already does have a name because as you used to come in, there was a little sign there that said hidden drive. And there was a little road that came down the hill. And we thought that was so interesting because it's a blind drive from, for the golfer as well. You know? So I think that that's probably going to be the name for the eighth hole, but, but again, it's kind of wanted to create something unique there with that green where it's that it's really the first time when you're coming in you, and you'll see it before you play, you'll see it on your drive in. And it's, you can see some of the golf course on your right as you're coming in, but, but, Cresting that hill where the hidden drive sign was and just seeing that green just open up. It's just a place where we knew like, Hey, this can't be just an average green here. No, it, it's a visual stunner for it sure. Is. You know, I, I wrote a little bit. We talked to, 
for about the 11th green that this mm-hmm. is a what does it tip out at about 120 yards to the middle yeah it's about one from 120 to 90 and so, so convention says a short hole like that you should have a tiny green yeah and <laughs> we do it, it's just there's you have six a bunch of, them. of <laughs> six tiny greens and some one large green so that that one um so that hole did not exist before it's one of the few that didn't was really the big routing change we made was in that 10, 11, 12 area. And so the green that's now the 11th green was the green site for the old 10th hole. And the 10th hole was my least favorite hole in the golf course. And I said, if we're doing anything out here routing wise, like we got to change this hole. And before it was the first hole, I can't imagine playing that hole and being like, Oh, this is going to be a good day. Um, It was a basically a 120 yard dog leg. So, and you had to hit between these two gigantic oak trees that were maybe 25 yards apart and then turn, you know, 120 degrees and hit up the hill. Yeah, this was, this was past 90 degrees. It was a fish hook. It wasn't a dog leg. It was a fish hook. It was a fish hook. Yes. And so a lot of people would just hit driver up over those trees and they'd be on 11 T or 11 green. And so there was a, a pretty obvious green location for the new 10th hole, if we were going to change it. And so we did, and we combined the 10th green into the 13th and made a large double green there. They, they are the same putting surface, but they really don't exist together. You don't see the 13th portion of that green from the 10th tee and, and vice versa. And so once we did that, we knew, well, here's our, you know, we can play the short part three back across this Valley. And, and it's a really beautiful natural hole from the tee that's there. I just had to convince the owners that, Hey, this is still going to be a good golf hole. You know, it's short, but we're going to make it, we're going to make it good. Like, and I mean, the, really the first day out there, I was like, that's gotta be the best green on the course. And I, I I don't know exactly what I'm going to do yet, but it's, it has to be the best one because I've sold this idea. I've taken this hole that, so Chester Bethel is one of the world's most interesting men. And he was the, he was the manager slash superintendent. He was basically running this golf course and, and it was the side of his first hole in one. So he was very attached to that hole. And so he's, you know, he just like I do and ever and Colton and everyone else involved, we all got equal votes on things. Chester didn't want to lose the old 11th hole because he had a hole in one there. So I said, well, I got to make this hole good enough. You know, that the Chester will forgive me for taking his hole in one hole away. And, <laughs> So I've had this idea for a long time to build a green based on the seven deadly sins. It's just kind of a unique little idea I had. And Colton had already said something about he wanted to name that whole little devil because it's short, but it's tough. You know, Mm -hmm. it's a lot of people will look at that on the scorecard and say, all right, birdie chance. And there will be some birdies there. There will be some ones there, but there's also going to be some people who walk off that green, shaking their head, making a four or worse, potentially. Um, yeah, they leave it short in that bunker. Nobody getting four is going to be generous. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, so that was a green again. I knew, you know, I want to do something pretty cool here. And so, and, and so we did. So I built it on this concept of the seven deadly sins. So it has a little bit of a false front right on the front. And so that was, I think we decided that would be sloth. You'd come up short, so, mm-hmm. you know, lazy. And, you know, middle of the green. Um, trying to remember what, what the seven deadly sins are now that I think about it. So, greed, sloth, um, envy. Yeah. Those are the big lust. Pride is the middle of the green. That makes okay. sense, right? You'd be proud. You hit the middle. Um, gluttony. So, there's this big knob that's on the front right of the green, totally blind from the tee. You have to go over that short bunker to get to it. You can't see the knob that's there, but it is you know, about two and a half feet higher than the rest of the green. And is a very small, like maybe 1,200, 1,500 square foot area out of this basically 11,000 square foot green. And then back left. So the 18th green, as you mentioned earlier, is a, is a punch bowl green. It kind of already was. It, it's just that the green, the green was kind of a dome shaped green inside of a punch bowl that already existed. So we're like, hey, let's just, you know, let's flip this thing and it'll be a punch bowl and a punch bowl. And so from the back left of the 11th green, you have this perfect view through these two trees of the 18th green. I said, Oh, well, if we build a tiny punch bowl here, it'll be like, it's envious of its larger 
Nice. They were the 18th. Okay. Right. And then we've got a little bit of a May West feature in the back, right? And so we did that was lost, you know, right. a, you know, a little bit like the two mounds that kind of create a pin position in between them. And then we decided, well, you know, if, if it's going to be a little devil, then, the, you know, that front pop bunker can be the, you know, the hell bunker. And then the one that's well short of the green, that it's really just a, a top shot bunker, but you don't want to go in and that would be a purgatory because if you get in that one, you, you're going to be there for a while. Uh-huh. So, so anyway, we kind of just, uh, we kind of de- just developed this concept and started building and, and we messed with it a little bit and, and it just, just felt right. And it, again, it's of the people who've been out there and seen the golf course and walked it and seen the greens, they've, everyone kind of comes walking away saying, Oh, that's, that's going to be a lot of fun to put on that one. You mentioned a lot of different features there that have, and you were talking about two feet of change on a green. Did you, were you able to have some fun with slopes? I mean, it doesn't sound like you're chasing a PGA tour event out there. So one and 2% slope may have gone out the window on some of these. Yeah. I mean, for, you know, for the most part, we, we have a lot of pinnable area on the greens. I do push that pinnable area a little higher, you know, the PGA tour, if you're rolling 13, you're not, they're not looking for anything over 2%. I'll go up to 2.8. I know Tom Dokes talked some about that. That's where he, you know, he'll go to 2.8 on pinnable area. We have a lot of transitions in the green. So there's a lot of greens that have two areas of runoff, right? For the most part, they slope back to front, but then they may have a portion that slopes left to right off the green, or they may have a portion that slopes back to front for the first half and then front to back on the second half, you know, the second greens like that, 12s like that. Um, and 11 has probably six exit points for water. I mean, it's, you know, there's exits on the front, two in the back, one on the left. And, uh, so, you know, there's, a we were able again, because the site was, was there already. And because it's so large and rolling, we knew, we knew that the greens were going to be, you know, they were going to kind of follow that theme. And, and just for visibility's sake and not having 6% slopes that existed before, because a lot of the second shots, a lot of the approach shots there play uphill. And really the one, if you want to call it a requirement that Dave had was he wanted to be able to see the greens, at least a portion of every green. He wanted to be able to be visible to the golfer as they play the hole. And that's not unreasonable. Um, so on 18, you know, what are you going to do? You got this hole that's playing 70 feet uphill from the bottom to the, to the top. Well, you know, we just added just a little bit of a false front roll on the front right of that. And that's our, that's our visibility. We kind of had to do the same thing on five, which is a long uphill par three. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of transitional areas where there are very steep slopes and, and that was done just so we could create pinnable areas on some of these areas that were not pinnable when we started. You guys made an intentional design choice on 14 to put in something. And I read an article recently about this, about the intentionally kind of bland hole talk mm-hmm. because you're setting up what is a spectacular collection of finishing holes going up, up a hillside, coming down kind of around the mountain. And then this, this real good risk reward punch bowl to close. So mm-hmm. talk to me a little bit about your and Colton's thought process there. Yeah. So that was, um, that was an idea that Colton had. He had visited a museum in Oklahoma city the summer. I guess it was actually, we had started construction and it was that year. And there was a room in the museum that was just four blank walls. And as you're going through the museum, you're like, well, what is this? Well, come to learn. It's, it's, it's a place for you to rest your eyes and to kind of refocus on why you're there because, you know, there's so, so many different things that you're seeing in there. And this is something that just happened to me two weeks ago at the rock and roll Hall of fame. And I thought about it at the time because, you know, this had already come up, but you know, it just sensory overload. Mm-hmm. where you're seeing all this, all these great things, all these cool pieces of art or all these cool golf features, all these difficult decisions you have to make. And sometimes it helps just to, to be able to say, okay, this one's pretty straightforward. I know what to do here. It's, it was a hole where, you know, very early on, we didn't really know what to do with 14 because it's, it's a, it's the flattest part of the Valley. It's in the bottom of the Valley on the high side there's not a lot going on there naturally. It was really the one 
hole that didn't have a natural feature to build off of already. And keeping with our theme of not wanting to change the land significantly, we decided, hey, this would be a good place to rest and to kind of refocus yourself for what's going to be a really tough but fun closing stretch. And so Colton did a little rendering, which I, I loved a lot. I, first time I saw it, I didn't notice. But then the second time I did, I was like, oh, this is cool. So he did what he did was he did a little rendering of that five hole finishing stretch starting with 14. And he used musical notes in the background. And so on the 14th hole, there, there are very few notes. And then as you get into 15, 16, 17, he kind of used those notes to create the topography. And so, you know, you're starting out small, slow, and then all of a sudden you get, you start ramping up uh, into the more exciting part of the property and the more exciting golf features. So now 14, we, you know, we didn't leave it totally bland. It's not dead flat green. There's a, there's a nice little knob that was already there that kind of ran into the green. And so there's a nice back left pin location. So it's not, it's not totally straightforward, but it's, you know, again, it's just one of those places where you can just, just kind of have a moment before you have to start thinking again. I love it. And knowing what comes after it. Um, yeah. I think that's a good decision because you say it's, it's a difficult stretch. You've got a, 200 plus yard par three coming up. You're going up, you know, that climb up to 15 green. Uh, you've got the, I guess the only par five on the back coming up, you've got to go around and, and up. And then again, you're hitting to a blind punch bowl on 18. So there's, mm -hmm. and there will be some good scores on those holes. just a lot of, a lot of challenge there. One thing I thought interesting about the process, it seemed, you know, you were on equipment moving, you know, on greens and, and green complexes, Colton was out there on equipment, the, the design, you know, you've got people, the design build is all the rage has been for 20 years on the, the Pete Dye lineage to core Crenshaw and, and those guys versus the mm -hmm. design contract. seems like they're all those lines are blurred because there's no, maybe other than Rod Whitman at Cabot, there's really not a one man show. I mean, I assume even he had somebody bring in irrigation. So, oh, yeah. You know the the fairy tale of design build. Let me put it this way: What do you know now that you didn't know, or you wish you knew in 2019? Oh, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> I knew this going in, but I was probably a little cocky in that I felt like I could both shape and manage a job at the same time, and and that's very difficult to do. You can't be on the bulldozer and observing the irrigation install. You know, you can do those things at the end of the day and every day, every day after work, I was the last one out there every day and I'd be walking around, you know, with my notebook observing, but, you know, not being able to, to be there and making those decisions. And, and we did have two contractors on site. We had one doing the irrigation install and we had uh, another smaller crew that were following up behind us and doing the finish work on the greens and corn out bunkers and putting in drainage and things like that. So we had a lot of different guys out there that were in charge, a lot of different personalities that were out there in charge. And you have to have someone managing that process. And it's hard to do when you're trying to build at the same time. And you've got a tight schedule you're trying to get done. You're trying to stay ahead of those guys who are draining behind you. And so, you know, it's a lot of time getting pulled off of the machinery. And so I think I it would have been nice if, if we'd had a little more structure on that part of it. And then again, the sinkhole thing, I wish I'd known more upfront about how important those things were to the, to the process because they cost us some time, cost us some money. And, uh, and drainage is everything. So there you can. Yes. Yes. And I didn't, I didn't realize their importance to the drainage of the site. Correct. You know, this is a, a Phoenix project. This is the $6 million man. You guys took a decrepit dead golf course and you and Colton reimagined it within an existing footprint. Is that some, you know, we are in what some call the golden age of renovation or restoration. Is that kind of model something you are taking with you? Is that prominent in your portfolio going forward? Do you think that is where a lot of work is going to be? You know, there's, it seems like a lot of people are chasing resort golf. That's where all the new courses are being built versus you're not seeing as much neighborhood development golf course or even something 
a one-off like Park Mammoth. I don't think there's room to build a, a second course in that valley. So kind of talk to bigger picture. Talk to me a little bit about just the what impact the project has and, and what you think it kind of offers to the, the golf world. Yeah, I do. I see projects like Park Mammoth being a big portion of the work going forward. You know, there's been a lot of restoration work going on. Very, very, very impressive work that's been done on a lot of courses that were built in the golden age. And most of those are done now. And that doesn't mean they'll not continue to evolve. You know, they're golf courses, they're living, breathing things. They change over time. So there's always going to be a little bit of that there. But for the most part, a lot of the great historic courses have been recently restored in the last 10 years. And so I see that movement somewhat slowing down. And so I don't think you'll see a lot of projects like Park Mammoth on the scale of Park Mammoth get redone. I mean, there, there have been a few in, in the past, Sweetens Cove being a good example mm-hmm. of a similar situation on non-holes. But you, I don't think you're going to see a lot of the total rebuilds that cost, you know, five to six million dollars like our project did, just because I just don't see that there being a market for that from an ownership perspective. Again, we kind of got lucky on, on that regard. I think you'll see a lot of renovation work at courses built in the 80s and 90s that a lot of those courses are the work that was done originally and they haven't been changed since. And so a lot of that infrastructure that's below ground and the greens themselves and bunkers and things like that are kind of reaching the end of their life expectancy. So I think you'll see an opportunity there to, to redevelop or rethink some of those golf courses. And some of them are residential and some of them aren't. It just, you know, just kind of site specific, but I don't think you'll see a whole lot of, Oh, this golf course closed, someone bought it and now they're going to build something totally new. I, you know, I don't see that becoming um, the model necessarily. Now, what Park Mammoth can mean to to golf or to Kentucky golf, I mean, again, I'm 100% biased on this. I admit that openly. It's a great golf course. I I think we did a great job patting myself on the back a little, but I I think the day it opens, it'll jump into top five, if not top three public courses in Kentucky. Uh, That's my my expectation. I think it's – it's going to be a lot of fun. I think people are going to like playing out there. And so I think there are some individual lessons to take away from that. And again, and let's remember that golf is meant to be fun. It's a game. It's not a, for most of us, it's not a way to make a living. And, you know, why would you want to go out there and, and kill yourself for, for four and a half hours and spend $40 on golf balls every time you go out to play? So I think there are some lessons that can be taken from it from that perspective. I agree. I agree. You know, I, I've got, you've got a lot of fans. The course already has a lot of fans. You guys have done a, a nice job through social media of giving some teases and some looks. That's how I, I think I found you The you had a, a really nice picture of the tree behind 16 T right at a time when we were talking oh, about yeah. a, a great, um, you know, the great D treeing of a lot of classic courses, you know, Oakmont mm-hmm. being, I guess the leader in the clubhouse on that, where they took out hundreds of, if not thousands of trees, mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, the in within Kentucky, within kind of the hardcore golf nut, yeah, we're just chomping at the bit. We can't wait to get down there. Um, you know, it's interesting you mentioned the how special it is. I just got done reading Jim Hartzell's book about kind of the process story behind Sweetens Cove, and there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of parallels. Um, I think you even mentioned to me that that Mr. Chandler had played that and may have influenced his kind of decision to uh, of how he thought about the the project. One hundred percent did, yes. You know, as a as a gypsy public golfer, of course, I want the same thing to happen at uh, municipal courses everywhere. You know, there's a lot of infrastructure to be upgraded there. Are you and kind of the the work that you follow and and bidding are our cities and counties and states are they embracing this age of restoration on any kind of scale? The same that you've seen from a lot of these classic member clubs and and privately owned clubs, or are they I know they're always going to be a lagging indicator, but how far behind are they in your opinion? Yeah. You nailed it with the lagging indicator there. It's there. It's just behind. And it's, it's starting to gain momentum now that again, that 
they have money now. We have they have COVID stimulus funding. You know, the major restoration movement in golf is still there. I'm not saying it's not. There's a lot of Bill Hans is busy. Yeah. But there are a lot of municipal courses who are starting to look at their golf courses and and realize that they are valuable people. And and it's not just a COVID thing where golf has become popular again. And, you know, they've had good revenue years the last two years. It it was before that, but again, it's just, it's just been a slow process. And the the main reason for that is there's, there's just so many interested parties and, and so many roadblocks to overcome to go through that process, to get, to get the, Park director on board and then the city council and then the residents and kind of get everyone on the same picture to say, yeah, you can use my tax dollars for that. But there is, there is, you know, there is a munisance as some have called it going on right now too. And, you know, Charleston municipal is a, a great example of a mm-hmm. city who reinvested in their golf course and did something unique to kind of mirror their two high and privates in that area. Um, there's, you know, the National Links Trust in D.C. and then Cobb Creek in Philadelphia, that's two public-private partnerships. I think you'll see a lot more of that going forward where you've got private money reinvesting in these public golf courses. Um, you know, again, that's those are both, you know, it's basically four golf courses there between the two of them that are going to be restored. Yeah, that, um, that foundation model, that's the one yes. that's going to be interesting going forward. It's not mm-hmm. just a for what we're talking about there for people that may not know, we're not talking about just a private contractor coming in and taking over running of a golf course and paying some nominal licensing fee to the, the city. This is a basically, I guess the not for profit model where they, they a foundation charitable or otherwise runs it and kind of reinvests what they, whatever profits they can in the course. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you've got you've got a lot of guys out there right now who are doing it for the love of game and for the love of that golf course for their city. And another great example, Michael Kaiser up in Madison, Wisconsin, just donated a bunch of money to the city to fix up Glenway Golf Course there, and they just finished that project with Craig Haltom and Brian Schneider. And I was just up there a few weeks ago. Um, I know one of the guys that works for the city got a tour of the course. I mean, it just. Again, just a, a small project. They didn't change anything routing wise, just rebuilt the greens, bunkers, and and it's it's gonna be such a better golf experience for the city. And and now they're set up on that golf course for the next 30 years and they don't have to and the city didn't invest a dime. So, you know, that model going forward, I see a lot more of that, hopefully. There are plenty of other examples I can, you know, name 10 right now that are kind of in planning in different stages are just my other guys. I know I just lost the project last week in Harlingen, Texas to Jeff Bloom on, on a 1925 oh. um, golf course that, that again, the city, you know, they're going to put several million dollars into it and, and revamp it. So there's, it's definitely there. It's, it's slow, but um, you're going to see more municipal courses redone in the next probably 10 or 15 years than had been done in the last 10 or 15, I believe. That's, that will be a welcome change. You mentioned some of the travels. Where else is, is work taking you these days? Oh, uh, well, like I said, uh, just in Wisconsin uh, last week, I did a, started a small, so I, I do some shaping for Richard Mandel, who's the guy I came up as a design associate for, and we've done a few projects together. We have one in Florida that we do every spring, about a four or five week project. And we had a small project up in, uh, Walk, Wisconsin, which is just outside Milwaukee at Walk Golf Club, which is a 1916 Donald Ross. It's been toyed with quite a bit. And so, you know, this is a, kind of a long range, probably be a 10 to 15 year process where they're, you know, trying to reclaim some of, some of what was there before. And so we kind of started small, just to kind of give the golfers a taste of what we were going to be doing. And we eliminated a couple of bunkers that were unoriginal and that were presenting some maintenance problems. And so started that. And of course, anytime I go on a trip, I'm looking to see some golf courses too. So I went to Sand Valley and uh, saw the Lido and set, you know, the new Sedge Valley site. And of course the two, three existing courses and played Lasonia. Um, then the next week I was in Cleveland. I'm a proud new member of the, the first year of the associate program that the ASGCA has introduced. They have 15 new members that, we're not full members, you know, it's, it's kind of a process though, for people who don't qualify yet to kind of work their way into the 
into the ASGCA. So that was a lot of fun. We had the annual meeting in Cleveland last week and I got to play some really good golf there. And um, I'm headed to Houston tomorrow, then Nashville on Thursday, Kentucky on Friday. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, uh, it's just part of the lifestyle. You got, you got to get out there. It's, it's a tough job to be local or regional in there's, you know, true. The Very projects true. exist where the projects exist. And, you know, if you want them, you got to go get them and you can't, can't always stay close to home. And I, luckily I do have some work here close to home, but you know, I spent a lot of time on the road too. Well, we're glad you came to Kentucky. I think once people are able to set foot on property down at park mammoth, um, Hopefully, maybe you'll be able to have a little more say in where you travel because uh, I. Yes, that, that'd be great. Yeah, I mean, and we're kind of in this we're kind of in this awkward zone right now where I know it's good. I I I'll swear by it, but nobody's seen it yet, and most people still haven't even heard of it. So I'm, you know, I want it to be open so bad. I, we were talking about that yesterday. I just it's going to be a long winter. It is. Uh, you know, you're on Bermuda grass down there, right? You're on good yep. hardy Bermuda grass, so it'll it'll go to sleep probably around Thanksgiving and wake up in the spring. Yep. Yep. We're, um, we're ready. We used to home a 31 Bermuda. It's kind of a, one of the newer Bermuda hybrids created at Oklahoma state university. And it, it is an all-star. I mean, it, it looks so good right now, even late, you know, yep. for that for up there, you're, you know, it wouldn't be unusual to see that start changing really before the end of this month. And, and I mean, it's as green as and lush as it could be right now. Oh, I definitely know that we, my home course about a mile from here, a, a golden age local gym. Mm-hmm. Um, it has Bermuda that goes to sleep earlier and wakes up later than any grass I've ever seen. So, mm-hmm. you know, to have something a little more modern down at Park Mammoth will, will serve you well. Um, yeah. I mean, we're, you know, we're a zone up from Bowling Green. Bowling Green, I think is 5B in the climate zone and we're 6A just 30 minutes up the road in park city, but our golf, our golf course was green before anything in Bowling Green was last year. It's, it's a, it's really is a superstar Bermuda. It's going to take over the transition zone. Um, well, we're glad to have it. We're glad for the great work. Thank you for, for letting me learn about it. Come down. It's been fun meeting you. Uh, same, I'll be yeah. there. You're welcome there anytime. Hey, thanks for stopping by for this episode of the blind shots podcast. I can't thank Brian enough for being so gracious with his time and his insights. The Park Mammoth Golf Course is finally growing in properly and starting to look absolutely stunning. Go find Brian Ross on Twitter and Instagram at Brian Ross Golf. He has some incredible images of Park Mammoth, and his feed acts like a brilliant before and after timeline of what they made of the land down there. You should also check out Brian's work on online on his website at rossgolfarchitects.com. The course will be opening next spring, and it's safe to assume I'll be reminding you of when it's finally open so that you can schedule your own trip down there. Also, please check out McKellar Magazine. You can find my article on Park Mammoth, Colton, and Brian in Issue 5, which is currently available for the low, low price of $14. It's an advertising-free presentation of golf stories, photos, and illustrations that I guarantee you're going to enjoy. It's not a subscription-based publication. Each edition is a standalone project. But if you read one issue, you're going to want to read the rest. I promise. You can find it all at mckellarmagazine.com. That's M-C-K-E-L-L-A-R magazine.com. Links to Brian and McKellar can be found in the show notes or over on the posting at onebeardedgolfer.com. Finally, a reminder to head over to Apple Podcasts if you haven't already and leave a rating and review for the show. Each time someone leaves a five-star rating and review for the podcast... The fourth green at Park Mammoth gets just a little bit bigger. I hope you enjoyed what you heard here today. As I hope you can tell, Park Mammoth is a project I'm rooting for from two guys that I'm rooting for as well, with all sincerity. If you didn't like what you heard here today, sorry about that. I still can't do anything about it. I can't help you with it. I don't know if it's a me problem or you problem, but I will try to do better next time. I promise. And I hope you will join me here again next time on the Blind Shots podcast. Until then... Stay safe, be smart, and go try to find Park City, Kentucky on a map. Don't type it into your phone, that's cheating. And as always, when you have the choice, do decide to go for it and take dead aim.
that. It feels like 2020 never ended. <laughs> yeah, same. Yeah, that was that was another interesting part of, of the golf course too, just building it during all that. You, know? you guys were a little oasis. It was nice to get out there and see people working yeah. and and mm-hmm. you know seeing equipment move, seeing some of that rock that first time I was down there was unreal. I mean that you talked about that bunker behind eight, mm-hmm. seeing that when that was just limestone rock. Oh my yeah. lord! I was like, what are these guys doing? You can't. <laughs> I mean, you know, we were like a week into that project and i'm looking at all that raw use the minefield out there and i'm like good grief what have we done you know it's like are they gonna grind it up are they gonna make their own sand right here just start breaking limestone up we talked about doing like a quarry (laughs) and like you could pound that stuff down into road base and all kinds of stuff we could have made some money on that but there was enough of it 